0: Father in heaven, this afternoon as we try to understand again your will and and our understanding of your will for our lives, I pray for your Holy Spirit to guide and direct and lead us. May we truly be under the Holy Spirit's direction and not our own minds. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you turn with me to 2 Peter, chapter 1, one of the most familiar texts we have all read in the Bible. 2 Peter, chapter 1. We will begin with verse 19. Well, first of all, back to verse 19. Are we in a dark place today in our world? Do we need a fair amount of light in this dark world in which we live? And then in the next verse, verse 20, uh, is there a danger that we might get into private interpretations? Personal interpretations. Um, Here's a little principle that I'd like to share with you. In all of your Bible study, when you are reading any Bible text to try to understand what God is saying in that text, you dig everything out of that text you can. If necessary, you go to a commentary. If necessary, you go to a concordance. If necessary, you look up the word in, the, in its, clo- if, you're, if you can't read the original languages in a, in a concordance or a lexicon which tells you what the word means. You dig everything you can out of that text. And then you don't speculate one inch beyond that text. Don't go by, well, this infers that. This could mean that. Since this says, then maybe over here, and we go on into our little private interpretations. Most of our problems come is when we go beyond the text and speculate and guess and infer instead of just reading what the text says. So that's a principle here that will help us to avoid private interpretations. All right? Verse 21 is the great divide in modern Bible study. This is it. Did the prophets come up with ideas, and then the Holy Spirit gave them special impressions? Or did the prophets speak and write only as moved, and the word moved is really carried along by the Holy Spirit? Did they come up with ideas and the Holy Spirit helped them, or did they speak only as carried along by the Holy Spirit? That's the great divide in modern Bible study. Is the prophet's teaching limited to his culture, or does the prophet speak across cultures to our time? That is, again, part of the same issue. I'm coming across many people who profess Christ as Savior but relegate certain portions of the scriptures as opinion pieces. Well, that's what the prophet thought at that time. Um, This plays out most notably when there is biblical instruction that sort of cuts across what our current culture says is reasonable and right, or our personal practices say is reasonable and right. And the Bible says no, and we say, well, but that was their understanding. That applied to their time. It's the bias of Paul, for instance. And so we get into these arguments. There's the growing phenomenon of Western culture called religious pluralism. That simply means that opposing views are equally valid. You have one view. I have the opposite view. We're all relating to God directly. Both of our views are just as valid as the other one. And so that's religious pluralism. And that's impacting us in the Seventh-day Adventist Church as well. When we filter Scripture... Through the lens of culture, culture almost always wins. When culture dominates how we interpret the word of God, when the way our society works, and I think most of our problems today are due to looking to society and culture. I don't think we're much different than Israel, as they began to look outside of themselves for what was going on over here in this group. How did they worship over there? What made their worship more exciting than ours? and we're looking outside instead of God's Word. Another text, one of the also familiar texts is 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Verse 15. Or 16. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. All scripture, not just selected portions. You know, critiquing is good, but sometimes we just get into that mode of everything has to be criticized. Uh, Sometimes we go to the altar and then we alter. A-L-T-E-R. We shift what it says. Moses and Paul were highly educated, but didn't they have to unlearn most of their education to be used by God? Uh, Dissection can be very damaging in the long run. All right, we're going to do a little fun thing right now, I think, I hope. Uh, Recently, a young Adventist bemoaned the biblical literalism and fundamentalism rampant in our church. So let's take a look. We're going to do just a quick whirlwind Bible study this afternoon. Exodus chapter 20. The question is what about literal understandings of Scripture? Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. Some of you might know what that text says. Exodus 20, verse 11, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day, and hallowed it. Does that sound like a literalistic, fundamentalistic spin on Genesis 1 and 2? Pretty straightforward, isn't it? Let's go to the New Testament, though. That's where most of the interesting things are. First Timothy. Quick Bible study. First Timothy, chapter 2. Verses 13 and 14. First Timothy two thirteen. For Adam was first formed, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Is that about as literal an interpretation of Genesis as you could possibly read? Go to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. You know what that is, the faith chapter, chapter 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead, yet speaketh. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, and was not found, because God had translated him. For before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. Sounds as if Paul believes that these people were real, doesn't it? and the biblical account of their story was true even someone being translated without seeing death that's a pretty far-fetched story isn't it yet he seemed to believe it that that's what happened second peter second peter chapter 2 verse 5 And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Could Peter, a prophet and apostle, have actually taken the Noah story as it reads? Sounds like it, doesn't it? Let's go to Jesus, though. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. So Jesus not only believed the Noah story, he gave it added theological significance by linking it with his second coming, and do we hope that's literal? Well, maybe if one is, then the other is too. Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, verse 4. And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh? Wherefore they are no longer twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Pretty literal spin on the creation story coming from Jesus again. One more text. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. For as Jonas was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, wait a minute. you mean Jesus really believed the Jonah story to be literal? That's impossible. Who can believe that in their right mind? That's got to be some allegory to teach us some lesson. But Jesus not only told the story as if he believed it, But he applied it directly to his resurrection. Do we hope that that's literal? That his resurrection from the grave really happened? And Jesus is tying one story to the other story. We do like to say that the Bible interprets itself, don't we? Well, have we just read that? Did the Bible just get done interpreting itself? About the real stories of the Old Testament, even Jesus himself. If that's how they did it, then maybe it's just reasonable for us to do it that way, too. Now, I'm going to share one other thing with you. Excerpts from a new book, Outside Adventism. This is not an Adventist book. Trying to harmonize a loving God with the evil occurring in the world. Are you aware that that is probably the great issue for people who haven't accepted Jesus Christ or don't believe in God? How can there be a loving God with all the ugliness in this world? Who can believe in that kind of God? This is probably one of the greatest deterrents to believing in God that is out there. So here's a solution to the problem. Natural evil and suffering were built into the universe from its origin. Suffering and natural evil are allowed because God's intention is to create life through the processes of evolution. Evolution. Predation, death, and extinction are intrinsic to the processes that give rise to life on earth in all its wonderful diversity. Toil and death are the consequences of the finely tuned laws of physics that allow us to be here. Well, that's the tenor of the book to try to help us understand. Of course, the idea that earth's creation was very good, Adam and Eve being created perfect uh, and and fell, all those have to be dismissed. Evil, pain, and suffering are, quote, the unavoidable byproduct of conditions that the natural world has to obtain in order that there be intelligent life at all. And so suffering and death and evil, according to these authors, instead of being the result of free beings who abused that freedom, were wired into the creation by God himself. He intended it that way. Now we have, as our burden, the whole purpose of the great controversy is to vindicate God from the responsibility for causing all this evil and suffering that we have here, how he created. And so we're not going to buy this kind of thing. So I'll just say one thing. However wrong, however ridiculously far from the text these scholars have drifted, at least they have the intellectual honesty not to play games and pretend they believe in the creation story when they just don't. They've just told us, I don't buy that. It happened a different way. They have taken their premise, which is theistic evolution, to its logical conclusion and say this is the way God planned it all to be. And you either have to accept that or reject that. At least I like that. Um, one little more kind of interesting thing I'd like to do with you this afternoon. Let's look at our universe for just a minute. Imagine being on a starship. Traveling at the incredible speed of light. you know how how fast that is? I'm told, I've never measured it, that it's 11 million miles per minute. That's the speed of light. Is that just a little faster than 60 miles an hour? 11 million miles per minute. Imagine you're on a starship traveling at that speed. At this speed, you'd zip past our sun in nine minutes. That's all it would take you to get to our sun the center of our solar system, just nine minutes, just a blink of your eye, and you're there. You'd fly by Pluto in five and a half hours, the edge of our solar system, half a day's journey, five and a half hours, right to the edge. Okay, you want to go farther, continuing on. You'd have to travel four and a half years before you'd pass the nearest fixed star, Alpha Centauri at this same speed in which you got to our, the outside of our solar system in five and a half hours, four and a half years to get to the next fixed star. You want to get to the Milky Way, the center of our galaxy. Well, it would take you 100,000 years to get there, 100,000 years at the speed of light. You say, I want to go a little farther. I want to get to the galaxy of Andromeda, way out there, two million years to get to Andromeda, which is supposed to contain 100 billion suns. And then we have just begun. They tell us there are about 2 billion more galaxies out there beyond Andromeda. That's our little trip through the universe. According to Scripture, the one we know as Jesus of Nazareth put it all in place and holds it together. Wow, can we believe that? Literally? That that's our universe and that's our God? There's a text we've got to read. It's a very familiar one the book of Psalms. Psalm 8. Verses 3 and 4. Psalm 8. Verse 3. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man that thou visitest him? Put it in perspective. How in the world could God worry with all of these magnificent systems about a race of micron human rebels on the edge of his universe? And his son coming here to die. Literal belief in an incredibly impossible thing to believe. I found a poem. Myriads of gigantic suns racing through the trackless void. On courses known but to an omniscient mind. Splendor beyond description. Each flaming mass screams with a silent voice. God is my maker. Men on one tiny orb declare, there is no God. Yet the God whom they say does not exist went to that dejected world and died for me. That's the way it is. One little planet in God's universe trying to reverse everything that is true. I came across a rather strange statement made by an Adventist professor about creation. He said, What I'm skeptical of is the absolute necessity of believing that the only way a creator God could do things is by speaking them into existence a few thousand years ago. Okay. A letter writer responded to that. God could have used multiple ways to affect creation, isn't that true? He could have done it any way he wanted. But he chose to speak our world into existence. Since he chose to do this by speaking, and it is recorded in Genesis, why would we have any reason to question that this was the way it was done? If we question Genesis, how can we be sure any of the rest of it is true? We either take all the Bible at face value, or we discard all of it. There is no halfway about this. If this is not a serious issue, there are no serious issues. When someone holds a knife to the church's jugular vein, people need to know. I choose to believe the account of creation in which God spoke our world into existence one day at a time. Yes, God could have used other methods to create our world, but the fact that he did not is enough for me. Can we be that simple in our faith, brothers and sisters? When God says it, shouldn't that be The end of our discussion? Do we need to infer, speculate beyond that? All right. bottom line, what I'm really saying is that there's one basis for the existence of Adventism, and that is we believe that the Bible is the voice of God speaking as directly to us as if he were standing here talking to us today. It's the voice of God. Direct, literal, plain. Now, if that's true, we must take the next step. What is the reason that this infallible God decided to bring another movement into existence? And of course, many members within the Adventist church today are searching for Adventist identity. Who are we? Are we just another church denomination? Is another denomination really necessary? If we are not simply another denomination, what makes us unique? Well, let's take a look at a couple of things. I don't think it's our lifestyle that makes us unique. Orthodox Jews and Muslims abstain from eating pork. and They're very careful about that. Being a vegetarian is getting fairly popular among health-conscious individuals outside the Seventh-day Adventist church. There are various groups that promote an alcohol-free lifestyle. There are other Christians besides us who pay tithe. Some Christian groups, believe it or not, even dress more conservatively than Seventh-day Adventists. That's not too unique, then, our lifestyle. What about our doctrines? You know, we haven't contributed much in the way of doctrine. We've gathered together doctrines from various places. We've rediscovered doctrines. We've put them together in the framework of the great controversy. And sometimes we get pretty proud of our, no- our knowledge, don't we? We know that we have the truth, and other people don't. So even that doesn't make us too distinctive. Since we are not unique in lifestyle, Or even in doctrine, why did God see fit to call us into existence? We are being told constantly that our reason for existence, our mission in other words, is to witness and to serve. To call people to the gospel for the purpose of their salvation. We're told that over and over and over again. But isn't that exactly what Billy Graham has been doing for a long time and now his son? calling people to the gospel for the purpose of their salvation? And doesn't even the Catholic Church have a worldwide network of hospitals and charities to serve suffering humanity, to witness and to serve? Yes, it is true that our lifestyle and our doctrines and our witnessing and our service are very important and they help to define us. But are we missing something here? I found a perfect example of this blind spot in Adventism in the 2009 week of prayer issue of the Adventist Review. Now that is a custom we've been following for many, many years that once a year at least we have a week of prayer issue on one topic. That is hopefully read in the churches. This is when Elder Jan Paulson was the president of the denomination. Here is what he wrote in his introduction. Our church is a movement of hope with a message of hope to the human race. It is our mission to move across the surface of the planet, planting the seed of true hope in the human hearts. The readings for this week are not doctrinal expositions. They are sermons that seek to describe our mission. Okay, So that's the focus of this particular week of prayer issue, the mission of the Adventist church. And the first one started out with a statement like this. The mission of the Son consisted in giving His life for others. And that was essentially the heart of the first article. The mission of Christ consisted in giving His life for others. And that makes me wonder, um, why didn't God just plant Jesus at age 30, like He put Adam at full maturity. Jesus would teach for His three years, and then He would carry out His mission of dying for the sins of mankind. Did God waste 30 years of Jesus' life? In other words, if Jesus' mission was to die for the sins of mankind, could there have been more to His mission? Could there have been something else involved in His mission that He was trying to demonstrate? Well, that was the first article. The mission of Christ is to die for us. Then the next article said, Our primary mission is to proclaim the message of the three angels to the world. Sounds good again. And then the next three articles went into the three angels' messages. And the first one said this, Whenever we ask forgiveness for sin, we are clean because of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So long as we accept Jesus as our Savior and High Priest, we need not fear the fury of God's judgment. Just foster a friendship with Jesus. Every believer who knows Jesus and accepts what he did for us on the cross, the day of judgment is really the day of deliverance. So... How to pass the judgment? Believe in Jesus, and uh, then you will be, he will stand for you in the judgment. Then the second angel's message said something like this, to place yourself on the throne that rightfully belongs to God alone is to live in the spirit of Babylon. So what is Babylon, or what are we to come out of? Putting yourself on the throne. That's what Babylon is, and that's what we need to come out of. The third message did talk about Sabbath-keeping and loyalty as the seal of God. And finally, we come to the very last message. Now, traditionally, again, we have always allowed Ellen White to have the very last message of the week of prayer on the last Sabbath. And that was followed, again, in this particular uh, uh, issue. Listen very carefully as to what Ellen White is talking about here. See if there's a difference in what we just read. We are placed under the discipline and government of God to form characters and acquire habits for the higher life. We are forming characters for everlasting life. We should bring solid timbers into our character building, for we are working both for this life and eternal life. And as we near the close of this earth's history, we advance more rapidly in Christian growth, or we retrograde just as decidedly. It is when you are looking to his throne, offering up your penitence and praise and thanksgiving to God, that you perfect Christian character and represent Christ to the world. My brother, my sister, I urge you to prepare for the coming of Christ in the clouds of heaven. Day by day, cast the love of the world out of your hearts. Understand by experience what it means to have fellowship with Christ. Prepare for the judgment that when Christ shall come, you will be among those who will meet him in peace. God will bring those who reflect his image to behold and share with him him his glory. Does that sound just a little different from what I've just been reading in the past couple of minutes? So what I found was much good material in those first six articles, including the three angels' messages, but nothing, and I mean nothing, about perfecting character and reflecting God's image until Ellen White is allowed to speak. Nothing in any of those articles. What I'm saying is simply this. Our mission is more than doctrine. It is more than lifestyle. It is even more than witnessing. It is perfecting character under the final atonement for the purpose of vindicating God's law and character and ending the great controversy. That's the blind spot in Adventism today. That's what's hardly ever talked about always it's evangelism and witnessing and I belong to an evangelistic organization and I believe wholeheartedly in soul winning but as a byproduct of our mission not the primary part of our mission we're getting the cart before the horse here and not even realizing it because witnessing sounds so good we need to be witnessing that's our mission no we need to be preparing for the seal of God that's our mission we need to be preparing for it to be part of the 144,000. And then we're going to share this good news with everyone we can. It's got to be in the proper order, and we missed that. We are so close to the final battle. Can you sense it? It's right there on the horizon. Um, Elder Bill Knott is the current editor of the Adventist Review, and I found this editorial, and I've got to share a little bit of it with you. It is really good. It is the night before the battle or put more precisely those odd, unwieldy hours when we have given up on sleep before the crisis that arrives at dawn. It is Elizabeth I pacing the bluffs of Tilbury as Spain's great armada lumbers up the English Channel. We see Henry V hidden in his cloak wandering through the campfires of his men. Across the span of Adventism just now, one hears the tread of all that pre-dawn pacing, the restlessness of millions of believers who correctly sense that all this waiting will soon yield in battles both intimate and titanic. The alignments of the principalities have mostly taken place. The hosts arrayed against the followers of the Lamb have been massing strength and weaponry in almost every theater of war, media, theology, science, education, culture, even government. The skirmish lines have long been drawn. We hear the cries of midnight pickets as those who quarrel with the word push hard on the ground of origins, on the trustworthiness of scripture, on the sanctity of marriage, on obedience to a seventh-day Sabbath, on the necessity of Adventist mission, on the rights of believers to freely speak and preach their faith, on this people's historic insistence that belonging to Jesus results in a lifestyle and behaviors different from the world. Emissaries, some with smiles, recommend that we surrender things distinctive about which Adventists have rallied for a century and a half. The flag proposed to us is not some scarlet banner decked with mystic symbols. No, it is simple, white, and deadly. So here's the call to find our nerve in all this pre-dawn jostling. A call to understand that these hours are, in fact, our most vulnerable movement moment as a people raised by God to be His remnant in these last days. This is a time for visiting each other's tents, for borrowing each other's courage, for deep, intense, and honest prayer as we beseech the Sovereign Lord to assure of His presence and His power in the struggle just ahead. What a call to arms. What a statement of where we are and our vulnerability here today on the edge of eternity. My friends, there's only one more battle to fight. The other battles have all been fought. Just one left. You remember he talked about smiling emissaries? Here is a smiling emissary recommending the surrender of a distinct and vital, though politically incorrect, Adventist truth. This is an Adventist minister For over a century, we Adventists have regarded the Roman Catholic Church leadership, typified in the first beast of Revelation 13, as our arch nemesis, the enemy that takes the evil part in the apocalyptic scenario against God's remnant. Here are seven reasons why it may be time to question them in that role. More than a hundred years have passed since our prophet approved these prophetic applications. Isn't it possible that some details of the apocalyptic scenario set out in the 1890s may have changed by the 2010s? Ellen White fingered Catholicism in a very different world. Historians have shown that 19th century American anti-Catholicism grew out of a general anti-immigrant nativism. The Roman Catholic Church of today is a much different institution than it was during Ellen White's time. The Second Ecumenical Council of the Vatican radically altered that denomination's theology and practices. Today's Catholic Church is not the same Catholic Church referenced in our 19th century eschatological studies. Far more Christians have been killed, persecuted, or denied their religious liberty by communism, military fascism, and Islamist extremism in the past centuries than by Roman Catholics. God has given us time to become a world church, and that changes the cast of characters in our eschatology. The Antichrists, to many of today's world Christians, are radical imams or cruel dictators." Religious liberty has arguably improved in countries where Catholicism has influence. During my lifetime, the papacy has frequently been a force for peace and freedom. Yet some of us still think that calling the Pope the Antichrist is necessary to win souls to Christ. But perhaps we needn't single out Roman Catholicism any longer. Warren Siebold? Yes. Do I hear a denial of prophecy here? Who, who is this you're talking about? It's an Adventist minister. <laughs> Do I see a white flag of surrender being held by an Adventist pastor? This is indeed a very vulnerable time in the history of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. Now, something very unique just happened at the last general conference session. At this meeting, we elected a new president. Well, that's nothing special. We elect presidents rather regularly. But did you listen closely to his inaugural address? It was like nothing I'd ever heard before in my lifetime and I've been around a while now. He identified specifically and by name, 11 points of apostasy that must be corrected in the Seventh-day Adventist Church if we're going to fulfill our mission. 11 points. In case you missed them or have forgotten them, I'm going to refresh your memory this afternoon. I have felt convicted to speak out in a stronger way about certain subjects that are removing us from God's mission for His remnant church. Certain subjects that are removing us from God's mission for the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I'll list them by number. Number one. I humbly ask for your prayers that the message I share with you today is heard clearly and that the messenger not be lifted up. To that end, if there is a particular point with which you agree, please respond with a heartfelt amen instead of applause. Thank you for your help in keeping the message, not the messenger, the center of our time together. Well, what is that? That's just a minor matter. A little applause didn't hurt anybody. But worship services have become entertainer-centered. Not God centered, encouraging pride and irreference by this technique. Well, that's number one. Maybe not as significant. I think it is. Number two grace is the promise of God's pardon and the provision of God's power justification, and sanctification. You cannot separate what Christ does for you from what he does in you. This is the everlasting gospel spoken about in the first angel's message, it is righteousness by faith. The great controversy theme is all about God's grace to save sinners and through his power to transform them into his sons and daughters. Now you just have to realize, as I have been working on this thing for the past 26 years, What a needed corrective to the popular half-gospel that is being taught throughout Adventism today just to say those words. The theology we have been subjected to for the past 25 years, that is God's grace and His justification that saves us. Oh, yes, there's sanctification too, but but that's not quite the way of salvation, you understand. Just those words. Number three, God used Ellen G. White... As a humble servant to provide inspired insight about Scripture, prophecy, health, education, relationships, mission, families, and so many more topics. Let us read the Spirit of Prophecy, follow the Spirit of Prophecy, and share the Spirit of Prophecy. The Spirit of Prophecy is one of the identifying marks of God's last day people and is just as applicable today as it ever was before because it was given to us by heaven itself. May we never make of none effect the precious light given us in the writings of Ellen G. White. Well, he apparently felt so strongly about this, near the end of his presentation, he came back to it again, and here is what he said. Go forward, not backward. Accept the spirit of prophecy as one of the greatest gifts given to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, not just for the past, but even more importantly, for the future. It is a heaven-sent guide to instruct the Church in how to carry out its mission. It is a reliable theological expositor of the Scriptures. The spirit of prophecy is to be read, believed, applied and promoted. Let me repeat a conviction of mine. There is nothing antiquated or archaic about the spirit of prophecy. It is for today until Christ returns. And my friends, this is the single biggest issue facing the Adventist church today, the biggest one. Will we listen to and obey the prophet or will we make her writings of none effect by selective use? You don't have to deny Ellen White. You just have to pick and choose in her writings and put some of them back to the last century because they certainly don't work anymore in our century. The biggest issue facing the church. Number four. The church, this church, is not just another denomination. It is a unique, heaven-initiated movement with a mission of salvation to the world that must continually go forward in the humility of Jesus. That's the concept of remnant. Is there a true remnant that we can use as a label for this church? Number five, our success in finishing this work depends on humbling ourselves before our Creator and denying self so that Jesus can control us and overcome our sin. Did you notice our success in finishing the work? Finishing the work depends on denying self so that Jesus can control us and overcome our sin. It depends on whether or not we are ready to humbly ask for revival and reformation in our lives personally and corporately as a church, which will lead to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the latter reign. And then he dared to read from Christ's Object Lessons, page 69. Quote, Christ is waiting with longing desire for the manifestation of himself in his church. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. It is the privilege of every Christian not only to look for, but to hasten the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Were all who profess his name bearing fruit to his glory, how quickly the whole world would be sown with the seed of the gospel. Quickly the last great harvest would be ripened, and Christ would come to gather the precious grain. And once again, my friends, if you only knew how much ridicule has been heaped on this teaching in the last 30 years. Out and out ridicule on this teaching. It's called harvest theology. Well, when the harvest is ripe, then we go home. Who can believe that anymore? This, my friends, is our mission. Christ Object Lessons, page 69. Not doctrine, not lifestyle. Not even witnessing. Witnessing is a byproduct of our mission. If we accomplish this, we succeed as a Seventh-day Adventist denomination. If we do not, we fail. No matter how many souls we win. This is the bottom line. This is the only way, by the way, that the gospel will go to the world. We'll never get it done by any method that we've got going today. Only if we live this life Uh, that we are being told right here in Christ's Object, Lesson 69, is the gospel ever going to go to the world? All right, that's five. Now we're going to go over to number six. Go forward, not backward. Do not succumb to the mistaken idea, gaining support even in the Seventh-day Adventist church, of accepting worship or evangelistic outreach methods merely because they are new and trendy. We must be vigilant to test all things according to the supreme authority of God's Word and the counsel with which we have been blessed in the writings of Ellen G. White. Don't reach out to movements or megachurch centers outside the Seventh-day Adventist church which promise you spiritual success based on faulty theology. What he's talking about there is the church growth movement outside Adventism that is now deep within Adventism itself, the megachurch centers. The great places where we learn how to do our witnessing. You know what they are? Remember Israel? They thought that maybe these people next to them had really good methods of worship and church growth on those hillsides. The tops of the hills. They had groves planted up there. And they did very strange and mysterious things where they worshipped Baal and Ashtoreth. Church growth. And the megachurch movement is our modern Baal and Ashtoreth groves on the hilltops, my friends. And we are going there to learn how to do God's work and finish our mission. Number seven. Stay away from non-biblical spiritual disciplines or methods of spiritual formation that are rooted in mysticism, such as contemplative prayer, centering prayer, and the emerging church movement in which they are promoted. Look within Seventh Day Ad- the Seventh-day Adventist Church to humble pastors, evangelists, biblical scholars, leaders, and departmental directors who can provide evangelistic methods and programs that are based on solid biblical principles and the great controversy theme. Guard Against mystical beliefs and practices that are finding their way into the church through formats like spiritual formation and the emerging church. Stay away from mystical forms of prayer such as contemplative prayer, prayer labyrinths, repetitive prayer, using one word or a certain phrase, or centering prayer that seem to have become popular but lead to the occult since in many cases all thoughts are eliminated. Avoid the practice of inviting major spiritual speakers who are not Seventh-day Adventists to speak to church meetings, men's meetings, women's meetings, retreats, pastoral meetings, youth meetings, and large convocations. They probably have no concept of the great controversy theme. We need to be very proactive in requesting humble, Bible-centered Seventh-day Adventist speakers to instruct our church members in fully understanding God's great biblical messages for these times. And you know what? There aren't too many who realize how spiritualism is entering the Seventh-day Adventist church today. Not in the old-fashioned way with seances and Ouija boards and all that kind of thing. But these emerging church practices and the supposedly helpful methods of spiritual formation coming straight out of Catholicism. And not modern Catholicism, very old Catholicism, in which the monks found a place in the desert where they could enter into these mystical experiences with God. Be very sure, my friends, that you know what your children, your grandchildren, your nieces and nephews are being taught in our Seventh day Adventist schools on this subject right now. Be very sure. Number eight go forward, not backward. Use Christ-centered, Bible-based worship and music practices in church services. Don't go backwards into confusing pagan settings where music and worship become so focused on emotion and experience that you lose the central focus on the Word of God. All worship, however simple or complex, should do one thing and one thing only, lift up Christ and put down self. Worship methods that lift up performance and self should be replaced with a simple and sweet reflection of a Christ-centered, biblical approach. Resist worship styles and music that have more to do with self-centered entertainment than a humble worship of God. We need to focus on worshiping God and not elevating self. Music should lift us to the throne room of heaven. If music sounds like it belongs to a hard rock concert or a nightclub, it should stay there. And, of course, there's a very real danger of contemporary worship styles. What the real problem is, is focus on performance and self. That's the real issue, not so much the style, but the surface emotions, which is the opposite of the worship of God's holiness. Number nine, don't succumb to fanatical or loose theology that wrests God's word from the pillars of biblical truth and the landmark beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Don't be swayed with every little whim of theology or complicated time chart purporting to carefully explain unusual or obscure concepts that have little to do with our overall theology and mission. The historic biblical beliefs of the Seventh-day Adventist Church will not be moved. I'm pretty glad he included that one in there. See, up to this point he was dealing with what we would consider liberal trends within the Adventist church or evangelical trends within the Adventist church. Now he's dealing with conservative trends within the Adventist church. Don't be too proud to call yourself by a certain label in Adventism these days because faithful Adventists right now are being beguiled and deceived by, quote, new light, which was totally unknown to Ellen White, for instance. It would be new light to her just as well. A strange thing. God worked through this prophetic voice for 70 years with a pile of books higher than my head. And he forgot to tell her some important things that we've got to know before we can receive the seal of God. (laughs) It just slipped his mind, apparently. He said, I'll let them figure it out down the line 100 years later. That doesn't sound right to me. Crucial truths. Totally omitted. You see, Satan doesn't care at all whether we're caught in the ice of indifference or the fires of fanaticism. Either way is just as fine with him. And I'm finding strange new beliefs as I go to churches around the United States. And uh, I'm glad he put that one in there. That's number nine. Number ten go forward, not backward. Stand firm for God's word as it is literally read and understood. That which the Lord in his mercy has given to us in clear language is to be taken as fact simply because he said so. And it must not be shrouded in skepticism. Don't go backwards to misinterpret the first 11 chapters of Genesis or other areas of scripture as allegorical or merely symbolic. If God did not create this world in six literal days and then bless the Sabbath day, why are we worshiping Him today on this seventh-day Sabbath as Seventh-day Adventists? To misunderstand or to misinterpret this doctrine is to deny God's Word and to deny the very purpose of the Seventh-day Adventist movement as the remnant church of God called to proclaim the three angels' messages with Holy Spirit power. Don't go backwards to atheistic or theistic evolution. Seventh day Adventist church members, hold your leaders, pastors, local churches, educators, institutions, and administrative organizations accountable to the highest standards of belief based on a literal understanding of Scripture. That's pretty strong language. Hold them accountable. A major, major teaching in Adventism. And finally, number 11 go forward, not backward. Let Scripture be its own interpreter. Our church has long held to the historical, biblical method of understanding Scripture, allowing the Bible to interpret itself. However, one of the most sinister attacks against the Bible is from those who believe in the historical, critical method of explaining the Bible. This unbiblical approach of higher criticism is a deadly enemy of our theology and mission. This approach puts a scholar or individual above the plain approach of the scriptures and gives inappropriate license to decide what he or she perceives as truth based on the resources and education of the critic. Stay away from this type of approach because it leads people to distrust God and His Word. Selected Messages, Book 1, pages 17 and 18, speaks directly to this issue. When men in their finite judgment find it necessary to go into an examination of scriptures to define that which is inspired and that which is not, they have stepped before Jesus to show him a better way than he has led us. Let not a mind or hand be engaged in criticizing the Bible. Cling to your Bible as it reads and stop your criticisms in regard to its validity and obey the word and not one of you will be lost. End quote. And, you know, this is the problem that has been affecting our higher education a long time before this recent episode of creation and evolution. Uh, For the past 30 years, this is the basis of most of our disagreements and controversies in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I went through this directly in my educational experience. The battle was real. Eleven points. Eleven points. Have you ever heard anything like that from a general conference president in your lifetime? Awesome. Not as a retirement speech, please notice, but as an inaugural speech. That's a whole different thing. How much, my friends, we need to Moses to lead us out of the wilderness wanderings in which we have been wandering. So now, friends, in these past couple of years and on the next couple of years, now is the time for the earnest prayers from the 7,000 in Israel to do what we have just read right here. This is a difficult, difficult thing that this president is proposing to correct these errors in Adventism. Let's ask God to manifest his mighty hand at this critical juncture of Earth's history. A letter writer wrote in soon after this was uh, presented. To the Adventist Review, he says, I was re- It was really satisfying when I heard that our new general conference president made a call for revival and reformation. But that raises some questions. What are the specifics of revival and reformation? What are the nuts and bolts? Does that mean we will be reading articles in our church papers and hearing sermons from the pulpit on how to keep the Sabbath properly? Or the need for modesty in dress? Or that we need to abstain from wine, tea, and coffee? Will someone be speaking out against expensive houses and trips and big people's toys? Will there be evinced a concern about how many of the habits, customs, and practices of the world have crept into the church? Will our members be urged not only to be students of the scripture but to read Ellen White's writings? Those are the real issues, aren't they? The call for revival is very important, but unless we get to the nuts and bolts, it's just words and we need to see that revival always leads to reformation, changes in our lifestyle, even when it cuts across the way we've always thought about doing things, the way our culture has taught us. Are we willing to let the knife cut across our personal, shall we say, idols, desires, that are contrary to God's word? Well, that's how I wanted to kind of refresh your memory as to what uh, we can be looking forward to under the leadership of a new leader of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Let's be part of it. Let's support. Let's help. Let's do what we can to make this a reality. Finish up with one last thought. Who among Jesus' friends or his disciples or those who had brought back peace and healing really believed, really believed In his celestial future. Did they fortify their minds with the promises. That he would be raised again from the dead. Before it all happened. Or did they become saturated with their own cultural expectations. Of how this would all work out. So that whenever Jesus talked to them about dying. They reinterpreted and made it allegorical. He couldn't really die. That's not what the Messiah is going to do. No, Jesus would sit on David's throne. That's what we believe. When Jesus hung on the cross, abandoned by all those who knew him, the prophecy of Isaiah met its fulfillment, I have trodden the winepress alone, and of the people there was none with me. Where was Jairus, whose little daughter Christ had brought back to him from death that day at the cross? Where were the ten lepers with their newly invigorated strong bodies? Where were the 5,000 and the 4,000 that enjoyed that meal, those meals, provided by the miracle working Christ? Where were the temple guards, who when they were sent out by the uh, leaders as an arresting squad, returned back with the report, never man spake like this man? Where were they? Where are all these people? Why did Christ have to put his own mother in the charge of John when he had an assortment of brothers and sisters who could, take it, could have taken care of his mother? Wasn't it because not one of them was there present to sympathize and support him in what he was going through? Not one of his own family? We read, there were also women looking on afar off. These were sympathetic, Remember. And the first thing they did is they rushed home to prepare spices for for his embalming when they should have been baking date cakes and honey wafers for celebration on resurrection morning. It was just two days away. Get it all ready beforehand. No one cried, Shalom, Master. We will meet you in Galilee just as you promised. No one said that. Not one. Nicodemus and Joseph giving their tomb to Jesus, laying him with a spice-filled garments in the new tomb, thought it was for death's long sleep. At least they were providing him a home. In all that crowd of onlookers and participants, only one person spoke faith in the surety of Christ's future glory. And I think you know who that was. Someone who was being crucified right next to him. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. One person. How is it with you and me? Do we have unshakable faith in the truths of the Seventh-day Adventist Church? Unshakable faith. Do we believe without question in the pillars of Adventism and in our mission? Do we believe in the politically incorrect truths of Adventism, such as the nature of sin, the nature of Christ, perfection, last-generation theology? Or are those just culturally inacceptable today? Because our expectations are different now. Will we stand firmly with Jesus Christ, our high priest in the heavenly sanctuary? Will we do it different? Or will we be just like the Jews of old? That's the challenge that every one of us has to answer. And I hope and pray that our church will go forward as our president asked for us to do. Not backward, but forward into the very soon return of Jesus Christ after we pass through a little trouble ahead of time. But it's there for the taking and he is willing to offer it to us today. Would you kneel one more time with me as we finish? Father in heaven, I just pray right now That in our hearts there will be a burning desire to fulfill our mission. That nothing is of importance except as we vindicate your name, Father, and represent your character. So, Lord, do the impossible right now. Take a whole generation of sinners, those who have been Laodicean and careless and have let things slide, all of us. Take us all and with your mighty power remake us into the image of Jesus Christ not because we are worthy, but because we are willing. And so, Lord, I pray that this may be the generation that will believe the promises and go forward and not backward and will accept all of the things that have been promised to us by faith and that we will not let Satan's lies discourage or destroy us. May we never slip into these 11 points that our president warned us against. May we be careful discerners of truth and error. And I pray, Father, that above all things, that Jesus Christ will become more real to us every day of our lives until we walk into his presence in literal fashion. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.